Hi, I'm Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas in personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Mind Valley podcast. And for those of you watching this on YouTube, I'm trying a little experiment where I'm doing a split screen with the author. And the author today is Phil Town, the best-selling author, hedge fund manager, and founder of the rule number one of investing. Now, this is part of a series of special guests we are bringing on to the Mind Valley podcast to talk about money, to talk about abundance, to talk about investing. And the reason I decided to start bringing on guests like Phil Town, like Ramit Sethi, is because a lot of my friends, when I was speaking to them earlier last year, just before the new year, a lot of my friends were telling me about how one of their number one goals is to really do better financially, is to really master the art of investing, of saving, because the world is going through this uncertain phase right now. There might be a recession coming up this coming year. The stock market has gone through its biggest fall in 10 years. And I guess a lot of people are starting to worry about this, obviously, as they should. So I wanted to bring on intelligent, brilliant minds who can help shed clarity on what we should be doing as individuals to ensure that us, our families, our welfare is taken care of in the coming future. So let me tell you about this incredibly charismatic man directly in front of me on this camera, if you're watching on YouTube. Phil, how are you today? I'm very good, Vishen. It's good to see you, man. So Phil Town is a three times New York Times bestselling author. He's the author of Rule Number One and Payback Time. In 2014, his Rule Number One portfolio was ranked number one by the American Association for Individual Investors when it produced a 50% rate of return. To give you guys an idea, the average rate of return is around 11%. If you just you know keep money in the stock market and don't watch it for like 70 years. In 2013, it produced a 47% rate of return. Now, rule number one shows you how Phil turned $1,000 into $1.45 million in only, get this folks, five years. And payback time pulls back the curtain on mutual fund managers who are responsible for growing your hardened savings and do very little other than eat up much of it through commission and fees. I'm guessing you don't like mutual fund managers, Phil. His mission is to empower individual investors around the world, and his background story is incredible. He's an ex-Green Beret, former river guide in the Grand Canyon to a self-made millionaire several times over. He appears regularly on the same stage as Jimmy Carter, Colin Powell. He's spoken to half a million people, and he's a regular on CNBC's Millionaire Inside. He co-hosts InvestEd, the rule number one podcast with his daughter, Danielle Town. And a uh, random fact about Phil, around nine years ago, I got to know Phil because my wife enrolled in a seminar he was giving in Singapore. It was like a weekend seminar. And I remember, Phil, you offered free access to spouses. So I got a free ticket because I was married to my wife, Christina, who enrolled in your seminar and thoroughly enjoyed it. That was the first workshop I'd ever done. Really? And I believe it's called the three-day transformational investing workshop. It is. And the class at the end of the workshop had selected 10 companies to buy. And this was the last time before right now that the markets had really crumbled in a major way. This was June 2009. And the class selected 10 companies. And the rate of return in those companies per year since then has been 32% per year compounded. 
it turned $100,000 into $1.2 million in the last 10 years. Wait, wait, wait. You're telling me that if my wife and I had just taken action, we would have one point what million? $1.2 million right now. Damn it. Oh, no, we didn't do it. At the same time, the S&P 500, of course, has done very well by its historical standards. It took that same 100000 and turned it into 300000 which was a historical very big number. I think it was 13% per year compounded coming off of that last market crash. And today it's, of course, starting to give a lot of it back. It won't give all of it back, but it's going to give a bunch of it back. And about, a, I don't know, six months to a year ago, we started going into cash. And last year we had you know, not a great year. We had about a 12% return overall, but the market overall in 2018 is down 6%. So that was about an 18% premium to the market. And best of all, we did that with half of the money in cash. So we're waiting patiently. I don't have a great crystal ball, but we have a decent crystal ball about when it's appropriate to be in the market and when it isn't. Right now, it's a great time to be storing up a lot of cash, I think, right now. It's a good time. So you're saying don't go into the market right now. Well, you could go into individual companies. And this is, of course, the great conundrum is we don't have any great method of timing the market per se. But what we do know how to do pretty decently is to understand the value of some companies that we like. And when those companies are expensive, we tend to want to sell them. And when they're very cheap, we tend to want to buy them back. And this process, of course, was invented basically by Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and is phenomenally successful. It's extraordinary what it can add to your rate of return overall. And what I love about it is it sort of protects you during times like this. You don't really have to worry so much about being in the market if you are selling things into that high market. It automatically takes you into cash. And you don't have to worry so much about trying to figure out when to get back in. Is Are we at a bottom? Is it going to keep going down? We just start looking for the companies we want to own. And when they get cheap, we buy them. I see. That's beautiful advice. And uh, it's very similar to what Ramit Sethi said recently, also on the same podcast. So firstly, I want to confess, I feel like an idiot here because I took your seminar with my wife. And at the end of it, because we were living in Malaysia at that time, we couldn't figure out how to actually put a thousand dollars in the market. But if I had just maybe gone that extra mile and figured out how to put a thousand dollars in that market on the shares that we picked at your seminar in Singapore in 2009, Man, that's a million bucks I just flushed down the toilet. <laughs> well, don't feel bad because the opportunity is just about ready to come back again. I know. So it's wonderful to be talking to you. And this is why this podcast is so important. It's because I really want people to learn from my mistakes. And I'm hoping you can help shed some light on this. So average person under 40, let's say, don't own your own home, don't have kids, not married. What would be the smart way, the Phil Town way? we'd be using our money to invest properly. Okay, so the smartest thing to do is to get an education so that you have a template for going forward in the future. Otherwise, if you're not going to get an education, I think you have to follow Warren Buffett's advice for people who aren't going to get an education in investing, and that is save regularly all that you can by the broad stock market, international markets, right, by using index funds or ETFs to keep your cost of commissions and fees low. Don't use mutual funds. They're expensive and they don't buy you anything. If you don't have much money, a robo-advisor would be sufficient. Betterment's one of them that have very, very low fees and they'll invest your money across a broad number of things according to your risk levels. And those are very standard good advice for those who don't have an education in investing. Now, 
the problem with that advice, and actually that's really, really good advice for somebody under 40, I have to say, if you're under 40, you have several decades before you really need to retire. And in that several decade period, you're going to build up quite a good fortune by just staying in the markets and being comfortably invested across a broad range of things. So this is standard diversified investing advice that you'd get from any sober financial advisor out there, including Warren Buffett. But there's a problem with it. And the problem with it is that, number one, it takes quite a long time to build up a lot of money. And a lot of people, including my daughter, Danielle, don't want to wait 30 years before they can start to live. And so the advice to don't drink a latte, don't spend money on a vacation, don't buy a better car, don't live in a, all of that's great advice. And you keep the belt really tight and you save and you prosper by long, long-term investing. And at the end, you'll be taking care of yourself in your retirement. And meanwhile, you might be looking back at 30 years of drudgery as well. So I don't really fall into the drudgery camp, finally. I don't, I've never been good at that. And that's why, as a river guide, I decided I am going to learn how to do this. I'm going to learn how to invest because I just couldn't see myself cranking away eight hours a day at some job for somebody and saving every penny. It just wasn't me, you know? So what happened? You were a river guide. And what did you do? How did you educate yourself and make this string of correct decisions looking back? It took a little bit of good karma, I'll tell you that. I nearly drowned a guy on the Grand Canyon in 1980, and he thought I saved his life. And as a result, he took me under his wing and said, look, I'm a very good investor. I've started with nothing, and I've made millions of dollars, and I'll make you my apprentice if you want to learn. And it was just sort of that time, you know, where, I don't know, dharmically or something, I just was ready to make a change. It just felt like I was done being a river guide after 10 years. And this guy came out of nowhere. And one thing I've been fairly good at is I've walked through the doors when they open, right? I sort of starting to feel like I'm in this windowless room and I'm starting to get squeezed and I don't know which way my life should go. And then this door opens, which was completely out of the blue and nothing to do with anything I'd ever thought about in my life. And I decided, okay, I'll walk through that door. And I ended up apprenticing to this guy for a year. And I learned this style of investing that I continue to do now and it's made me wealthy and we teach it. And it's very simple. It comes straight from Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. It's very, very effective, but you have to learn it. It's not something you can just sort of piddle around with. You have to actually learn it. And I like what Charlie says about it. He says it's extremely simple to do this kind of investing. And it really is. And so what I learned in that year of being an apprentice was that I had to focus on businesses. I shouldn't think of them as stocks. Right? I should think of them as businesses. And it didn't matter whether they were real estate businesses or franchises or a laundromat downtown or a business I was going to start on my own or buying a piece of somebody's company, private or public. They were all just businesses. So looking at it as businesses and then separating out just those ones I can understand, which in 1980, that eliminated most everything. And I focused down on just a handful of companies that I thought I could understand. At that time, I felt I could understand Harley Davidson's pretty well because I was riding a Harley. And the first thing is that Charlie says is you've got to be capable of understanding the business that you're about to own a piece of or all of. So that's pretty basic. Eliminate everything else. Then the second thing is make sure that business is a business that has some kind of way of protecting itself from competition. A business that has what we call a moat, which is essentially the water around a castle, right? And it's some sort of intrinsic competitive advantage. For example, if you are a railroad, 
your competitive advantage that's built into the company is that you have railroad tracks and it's really hard for anybody else to get railroad tracks. So if you're an airline, you have the landing space where you can come up to a terminal and that's really hard to get. So you have to have a business that's unique in the sense that it has some kind of protective advantage. So let me try to recap because that's really wonderful advice. So in my case, I'm an Apple boy. I love my Mac. I love my iPhone. I'm an Apple loyalist. I read every book on Apple. So I truly understand Apple as a company. So that would pass the a business I understand test. Secondly, I would look at Apple and I would see, do they have a moat? And in Apple's case, hell yes, they have a moat. Okay, so it would pass both of those tests. Okay, great. So let's go on to step three. All right, step three is where the wheels come off the wagon for a lot of good companies that have a moat and that you understand. And that is management turns out to be untrustworthy and begin to do bad things. So the third thing we need is management that we trust, that has integrity, and hopefully they're talented at what they do. In Apple's case, what do you think about Apple management? Well, I think Tim Cook, Johnny Ive, remarkable individuals. I think Johnny Ive is a visionary. I think Tim Cook, who is the CEO of Apple right now, is an amazing operator. And I love what they stand for. Tim Cook, for example, recently shared the advice that he was given by Steve Jobs and how that advice shaped his life. And it was so profound. It wasn't about making money or shareholder value. It was about doing good in the world and creating something that can better humanity. And I think Apple has great management when I look at them from a value-based perspective. Beautiful. Okay, then that's the third thing. Check that box. And then the last thing is looking at it long-term, we're going to put the money in and own it forever as if it's the only company we're ever going to buy. What's the value of that business that we should pay for it? And then cut that value in half and buy it for half that price. That's called margin of safety, which accounts for a lot of errors that we make in the first three things, that if we got the company at a great price, then we can be confident that at least we won't lose money. And that, of course, is the number one rule of investing. Don't lose money. Don't take a loss on your investment capital. And if you do that and you buy maybe, let's say over a lifetime, you buy maybe 20 companies and you don't take a loss on any of them, three or four of them will make you rich. And that's the essence of this kind of investing style. Somebody once asked Buffett, what's the most important thing in investing? And he said, there's only two rules of investing that you have to follow. Rule number one, don't lose money. And rule number two, don't forget rule number one. Right. And what he meant by that is actually extremely profound. It means that as a rule one style investor, as a Warren Buffett investor, my focus has to be on not screwing up. I'm not focused on making money. I'm not focused on having huge rates of return. What I'm focused on is not making a mistake with my money because this is my money. This is my future. This is what I vote with my values with. This is how I protect my family. And if I follow that rule that Buffett said is the one rule of investing, then I'm not going to put my money in something that I don't understand. I'm not going to put my money into something speculative that I might lose on. I'm not going to make bets. What I'm going to do is wait until I have certainty that this is going to be a wonderful business that's bigger in 10 years than it is today. And that's really what it boils down to in terms of trying to figure out what to buy. It's like, I'll look at a company and I'll say, all right, how certain am I that this is going to be a lot bigger company, or not even a lot bigger, just bigger. It'll be growing somewhat 
to some degree in the next 10 years. So if we were to take a look at Apple, we'd say, okay, will Apple be bigger in 10 years than it is today, or will it be shrinking over the next 10 years? That's the fundamental question that we have to answer. And if we can say for sure, Apple is going to be at least a little bigger 10 years from now, maybe a lot bigger, then the question is, what degree of certainty do I have? Let's say I'm 100% certain. Of course, we can't ever be 100%, but let's try. And then what should I pay for it today to make sure that if I'm wrong a little bit, I don't suffer? So Apple was at $230 a share not too long ago. And I'm a big fan of Apple, just like you, for the same reasons. I'm looking at an Apple screen right now. I'm looking through an Apple camera at you. And my phone is Apple. And my watch is Apple. And everything's Apple. And it all works together. It's in this ecosystem that I don't have to fool around with. So then I asked myself, okay, well, what kind of a moat do they have? And the answer is that they have what's called a switching moat. They have me locked in so that switching is just not really something I'm interested in doing. I don't care how good Samsung makes products or what their newest version is. It just doesn't matter because I'm not interested. I know that Apple will catch up eventually. And when it does, it's going to work on all of my stuff. And I don't have to worry about figuring out how things work together. And that little ecosystem thing makes a big switching mode. Apple also has a big brand mode. Obviously, I think in terms of buying an Apple, I don't think in terms of buying a computer. That's a big brand mode. And then it has secrets. It has an operating system that no one has been able to copy. Not only that, but I worked with Steve Jobs for a little while, so I know how difficult it is to replicate what they've done. So it's a fantastic moat in the company, and that moat is what makes me confident that it'll be bigger in 10 years. But how do you know if this is the right time to put money in Apple? It's that fourth step where I'm stumbling. How do I know that Apple isn't overvalued? Because, I mean, Apple briefly touched a trillion dollars, right? And it's the most valuable company in the world right now. But how do I know that it isn't overvalued and putting money in Apple right now would be a dumb idea? And for those of you who are listening, this doesn't apply to Apple. We're not saying put your money in Apple. We're simply using Apple as an example because it's a very obvious example. Most of you listening are probably listening on your iPhone or on your MacBook, right? So we all know Apple. But think about the rules that Phil is sharing with you and think about applying them to your choice of company. Your disclaimer there is really important because the whole point of learning how to invest is to not copy people without knowing what you're buying, right? And you can see how that can get you into trouble. Let's say somebody's listening to us and they go, oh, Apple, and they run out and buy Apple not knowing anything about it, and it goes down another 50%. Now, you and I, if we love Apple and we understand its value, we might be really excited that it's gone down 50% after we bought some because we want to buy more cheaper. Whereas the person who doesn't know is panicking because they don't know what it was worth in the first place. So to your question, the simplest way to figure out what to pay for Apple is to look at what we call its owner earnings. Now, the best way to think about this is imagine you own a piece of real estate that is, let's say, a house, and you rent the house. So now you own this thing, this business. The rent comes in. That's your revenue. Then your expenses go out. You have to pay for garbage and you have to pay for, you know, keeping the place up. But the tenant pays the rest of the stuff, right? So you end up with the expenses, whatever those are. Then you have to have a little fund that you put together that says, okay, every five years I've got to replace the washer and the dryer and the stove. And every 15 years I've got to replace the roof. So I have a fund that I put a little money into each year for maintenance. Subtract that amount. And what you have left, we call owner earnings. So this is the money you can put in your pocket from your real estate. 
right? Assume you bought it for all cash, so you don't have debt on it. So that money you put in your pocket, owner earnings, we want to buy a company or a piece of real estate at 10 times the owner earnings, just straight up. That's a simple, simple way to do this. So if I look out there and I say, okay, what's Apple's owner earnings? And that number is available to me. It's not hard to find. I look at that. I multiply it and assume that it's like, okay, let's make sure we have a good confidence that that'll be at least that big or bigger in 10 years. Then I'm going to do 10 times that number, and that's what I want to pay for Apple. And that comes out actually roughly right now, depending on what number you put in it, about 100 to $140 a share in that range, right? There's a range to it, depending on what you guess the future will be. So if you're feeling very conservative, maybe you buy it at 100 a share. If you're feeling pretty aggressive, you buy it at 140 And we can be pretty confident in our method here since Warren Buffett started buying it at 100 and continued buying it right up to 160 And now it's trading for $140, $150 a share right now. Down from 230 we sold it at 207 about two months ago, and now we're looking to buy it back cheap. I see. Okay, that's really fascinating. Now, how would we figure out the owner earnings for a stock like Apple using a simple tool like Google? Like, what do we put in? Okay, you will Google Apple investor relations because Apple hides its financial statements like many companies do that are retail companies. They don't put it on their retail website. So you go Apple investor relations and what comes up on Google will give you a link to where those numbers are. And those financial statements are part of learning how to be an investor. And so on the financial statement, surely it wouldn't say owner earnings. What would be that number that we are going to search for that translates to owner earnings? There's three statements in a financial statement. The first one is the income statement that tells you the revenue and the earnings. The second one is the balance sheet that tells you what the assets and liabilities are and your net worth. And the third one is called a cash flow statement. And this is where we live a lot. And we'll look at the cash flow statements. And the cash flow statement essentially is saying, what actual cash do we have going through the company here? So we take the net earnings of the company, which is the top line of the cash flow statement, and we subtract some of the numbers in the cash flow statement from that line. It's a little bit complex to get into that right here. So I'm going to give you kind of the bottom line on this. We subtract those numbers, and then we add back in the taxation got paid because we want owner earnings pre-tax. And then we subtract maintenance, which is a little bit hard to find. So I'm going to give you guys a shortcut. You're going to simply go to the line that says operating cash flow. It's one of the three bold lines on a cash flow statement. It's the summary of all of the cash coming through operations for Apple. You go to that line. And then about two lines down, it says purchase of property and equipment, which is all of the money Apple spends on growing the company. They're going out and buying computers and trucks and buildings. That's called capital expenditures. And it's purchase of property and equipment. Subtract that from operating cash flow. And what you have is a much easier number to find called free cash flow. So you could take Apple's free cash flow multiply by 10. And if you can buy it at that price, you're going to be doing really well. Got it. So again, we're looking at operating cash flow and we are subtracting purchase of property and equipment. That's a line just below operating cash flow. Got it. And this gives us free cash flow and we multiply that by 10. And as long as the stock price is below that multiple of 10, it's a good time to buy. 
Yep. Now we got to take one more step because what we just got there was the free cash flow for the whole company, not the free cash flow per share. So you need to divide that number by the number of shares, which is easy to find. Right. Now, what's also kind of cool here is you can Google Apple free cash flow. Now, that is a number that a lot of companies produce. Annual free cash flow for Apple is 64 billion. All right, so let's multiply by 10 and we get 640 billion dollars. All right. Now, a little bit simplistic here because we need to be a little more sophisticated than that, but right now the company is selling for about 400 billion dollars. So, we're a bit on sale already. So, it's a good time to buy. Yep. Now, this is a little bit simplistic in the sense that we want to make sure that we're very confident that 10 years from now, the annual free cash flow for Apple will be greater than $64 billion. So we have to do a little work here and just kind of get a sense of understanding this market. We need to be capable of understanding the market that we're in. Apple is not a simple one. I mean, I love it very much and I own it. But a simple one, much, much simpler would be something like Chipotle Mexican Grill right? Like a burrito company. And I can get my teeth into a burrito company. So you look for things that are really simple to understand so that you have a very good sense of the ups and downs that all businesses and industries go through and can look out into the future far enough that you can say, yeah, okay, I'm pretty confident that there will be more Chipotles out there in 10 years than there are right now. And I know that because they're building 200 new ones a year. They only have a couple thousand, you know, McDonald's has 50,000. You can have a lot more Chipotles in the world. So I'm pretty confident that it'll be a bigger company in 10 years. Doing that with Apple is a little harder because it has to continue to develop its products, right? They have to change and grow. Chipotle doesn't have to change its burrito at all. So it's a simpler company. But I like both of these companies very much. And we've made quite a lot of money in both of those companies by simply using this strategy. That is such a useful strategy, such a useful strategy. I wish I had learned that about two or three months ago when I put some money in Apple. I bought too high. Yeah, people have a tendency, by the way, to get carried into the market because there's this very powerful force in the world called group consciousness. And we are all part of that group consciousness, right? And so as things get better and better, we get more and more enthusiastic about them because the whole group's getting more enthusiastic. And this is, of course, how bubbles are created in all markets. We jump in because our friends are doing well with it and we feel comfortable because it's going up and it's been going up for a long time. And, you know, things go up until they don't. And then when they don't, it's very painful if you've just jumped in. But let me just say that I think this is a fantastic time right now to be starting to get ready for a big economic storm that comes along about once every five to 10 years. And we're in the 10th year now, so we're really overdue. Plus, we've got our government here in the United States. Donald Trump is completely uninterested in being in any way, shape, or form conciliatory on anything. And as a result, he's creating a lot of uncertainty in the market. And uncertainty ultimately breeds fear. And that ultimately breeds bad markets. And so we're really at the end of a long run. And this is a good time to just recognize that these rainstorms occur regularly. They're part of the marketplace and we should take advantage of them. And we're at a point now where we can get ready to take advantage of a big storm. And the idea is when it's raining gold, which is about to start raining gold, you don't want to go out there with a thimble. You want to go out there with a pickup truck. Here's the question, okay? So I hope those of you who are listening are following this. I found that if we just get on Google and we type in, for example, Facebook, free cash flow, 
it's easy to find that number. There's a website called gurufocus.com that just gives you that number. So here's another question, right? We talked about when to buy. Let's talk about when to sell. So Facebook Inc., free cash flow. And again, I'm not recommending Facebook Inc. here. I'm simply doing it as an example for Matt because we all know Facebook. Facebook, free cash flow is $17.5 billion. And then I look at the Facebook market cap right now, and the market cap is $400 billion. So obviously, if we use your math, it's 20 times it's free cash flow, almost 22 times it's free cash flow. So does this mean it's a good time to sell Facebook if we have it? Right. That's ballpark what that means. Now, of course, we're saying this completely in a vacuum. But yeah, what we want to do is we want to sell into greed. So the market's got more and more greedy about Facebook. Oh, it's always going to go up. Even though it's dropped quite a lot, it still was extremely high priced. And so we want to sell into greed and we want to buy fear, strangely. And that's a really powerful thing to be thinking about. It requires that you develop some very powerful personal values that I've found build up in your life if you become a real investor, right? Now, they talk about investing, like put your money away, like we talked about earlier, right? Put it into indexes and so on. But that really isn't an investment. I mean, it's investing in a sort. But by investing, I mean, you're taking personal responsibility for what you own and you're doing it with your values. You're doing it in a spiritual way. And this is what I learned. And this is what's really, really helped me is to understand that I'm looking into things and taking my money and I'm voting with my money for very specific futures. And I'm voting by not putting money into things. I'm voting against those alternate futures. And when I just buy everything in the market without thinking about it, I'm letting somebody else make my votes for me. So what I've found is I developed as an investor is that I certainly developed my logic, right? Thinking clearly, and I developed patience, the ability to wait long periods of time without doing anything at all until I get what I want. I get the deal that I want, which is almost inevitable in this market. The deals will come to you. And I also learned that viewing the world as a stakeholder in a business is a very powerful thing to do as a stakeholder, not an owner perhaps, but a stakeholder. So I am an owner of a business, but I'm also one of several stakeholders in that business. And I want to be sure that the businesses that I own are treating stakeholders well. So the other stakeholders that I'm looking at are, does this business treat the employees well? Does it treat the environment well? Does it treat the community well? You know, so I'm looking at this and saying, am I proud of this business that I own? Like, I'm very proud to own Apple and I'm very proud to own Chipotle when I owned it. I'm selling now. I sold when it got up to around 480 and I want to buy it back. I want to buy it back when it gets cheap again. So I want to be very, very clear that one of the critical things about being an investor is that you become someone who's voting your values in a serious way. You're thinking about what you want the world to be and what you want to support in the world with your money. And that creates a couple of interesting things. First, it creates confidence in the future or you wouldn't put your money in anything, right? You have to be thinking, okay, are we going to go forward? Or are we going to go backwards? And you also start thinking in terms of your money as voting for what you love in the world. What do I love seeing out there? right? Like I love your company. You know, you want to go public, you're going to have a lot of people looking at you because it's a company that has a lot of values based into it. And I love that about a company. So, you know, the guys that built Chipotle, not to pound this drum too hard, but this guy 
named Els that built the company, built it out of a set of values. He made a burrito out of values. His values were that I want poor people in middle class to be able to eat gourmet food at a really good price, at a McDonald's price. And so he created this amazing company that produces absolutely fresh, ethically grown, natural food. I mean, these guys are so ethically oriented that they took pork off of their menu for a year because they couldn't source it from ethical growers. And it's their biggest best-selling meat. I mean, they've walked their talk. I love John Mackey at Whole Foods, right? Before Whole Foods went to Amazon because he's a value guy. He's like trying to change the world in a powerful way. I love putting my money with stuff like that. First off, it makes me interested. And second, those tend to be fantastic investments. Like you said, with Steve Jobs, it's like, hey, we want to do something in the world, right? This is what Tim Cook's talking about. We don't focus on just making money. Screw a bunch of focus on making money. We don't focus on making money as an investor either. We're focused on doing something in the world that we really want to do. And that's such a remarkable, beautiful thing to say. As you were saying that, I brought up the uh, CNBC article, and it's called, This is the Advice Apple CEO Tim Cook Would Have Given His Younger Self, and it came straight from Steve Jobs. And Tim Cook said this when he was speaking to some graduating class or something. He said, most of your gifts will never be money. They will be a gift of yourself and your passion, your way of changing the world, improving the world for other people. And Cook went on to say, I wish somebody would have hit me on the head with that message earlier. Steve Jobs hit me on the head with it. It took a little while to learn. And I love that he speaks so passionately about Jobs, what he learned, and about serving the world. So thank you for saying that, because I think one of the problems that we are facing in the world right now is not enough companies with the intention to do good. And I think as we as a species are waking up to this, we are starting to put our money in companies that hit us right where the heart is, right? Like look at Tesla and look at the cult of Elon because he's constantly talking about doing good for humanity. And you look at what's happened with Facebook recently. There was a string of resignations from Facebook. For example, the guys who created WhatsApp and then sold it to Facebook, they just resigned from Facebook. One gave up 800 million in share options because they didn't agree with what Facebook was doing in regards to privacy. And this has caused me to question if I should be keeping my Facebook shares, right? I love that. That's exactly how you should be thinking as an investor. If you're just putting your money in the market, somebody else is making those calls for you. And you're abdicating your responsibility as a citizen of the world to make good votes here. And I learned this just like Tim did. I learned it, some of this, at least, from Steve Jobs when I was working closely with him. I funded a little software company that turned out to be a big deal I don't know if you recall, but he built a computer after Apple booted him out. He built a computer called Next, which is now the operating system for Macintosh, right? Apple uses it. And I put money into a software company that was building software for document management on the Next computer. And it became so popular that Steve asked me to come in and give him a demonstration of the software because all of the engineers didn't speak English that well. And so they said, would you please go and demonstrate this thing for us? So I started the demo and Steve grabbed the mouse from me and said, let me see that and wiggled some windows around and then got up and ran out into the hall to Todd Rulon Miller, who's the VP of sales, and said, if you ever let that SOB back in my offices again, I will kill you personally, and then went upstairs. And Todd walked into the room and said, what just happened? And I looked at Todd and I went, I have no idea. He just grabbed the window and he started moving and then he started yelling at me. And Todd said, well, don't leave town. I'll go find out and I'll call you. So I got a hotel and that night Todd called me and said, well, Steve was very upset because he 
figured out that the demo that you were doing was not connected actually to the database and therefore it looked to him like it was vaporware. And the company has sold over $75 million of computers to the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department and DARPA and Northern States Power and all these huge companies all based on that software. And if it's vaporware, he's going to be embarrassed publicly. But he's called the company and talked to the head developer, whose name is Paley Wang, and she assured him that it was just because of the development structure and because you're an idiot and they didn't want to give you any real software to use, talking to me, <laughs> thinking I would break it, which is probably true. And so he said, Steve wants to see you in the morning. So I went back in there and I'm thinking he's going to apologize, right? So Todd meets me at the hall and he says, oh, Steve's not going to apologize. Steve never apologizes. So just prepare yourself. So I said, okay, fine. And Jobs came out and he grabbed me and we went on a walk for about an hour where he explained that, you know, first off, he was really afraid of the vaporware problem. But he said, then on further review, he said, look, what I really didn't like was the interface. And this company has to build something that's up to its standard. And this is an interface that's not up to the standard. And I said, look, Steve, that interface has sold 75 million of your computers. I mean, the people at DARPA don't care about the interface like you do. They just want it to work. And it works. And he said, yeah, but I care about the interface. I have a standard and this doesn't live up to that standard. And I want you to fund rebuilding the interface. I love that. And that was his commitment to value. That was his commitment to value. I mean, the guy studied calligraphy at Reed College and had this passion for art and design and wanted in a way to make our world more beautiful. It was never about money for him. And he ended up building the world's most valuable company. So I get the message there. I love how you stress that message. In my book, I coined the term humanity plus and humanity minus companies. And humanity plus companies are companies which are actually creating a world better off for upcoming generations. Humanity minus companies are focused on short term shareholder value, but not necessarily a world for future generations. And I think more and more people are starting to realize that they want to buy from, they want to invest in, they want to work for humanity plus companies. And it's a very important thing to look for. And I think something real important for everyone is that our values about what's a Humanity Plus company might be different from you to me to someone else. And so I think what we're talking about, if you can agree, is just that you should know what your values are for Humanity Plus and then vote those values. Don't have somebody else do it. For example, Warren Buffett, I think, is an investor with enormous integrity. And yet Warren buys things all the time that I just can't believe he owns, like Coca-Cola, for example. Exactly, like Coca-Cola. And for example, I love healthy foods. I would never put my money in Coca-Cola. It's a remarkable company, but that isn't good enough for me. I don't believe Coca-Cola makes the world better off. Likewise, I wouldn't put money in a blue chip company like McDonald's, but Chipotle, I eat at Chipotle because they have a healthy menu. I love that stuff. So that's a very important distinction, and I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah, because Warren was asked about this once, and I listened to him say this. It was somebody said, Coca-Cola is so bad for you. And Warren said, look, I enjoy Coca-Cola. It makes me happy. I drink six or seven of them a day. And that's how I'm allocating calories to Coca-Cola. He says, I've been to Whole Foods. Nobody's smiling at Whole Foods. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great, great, great concept. I love that. So thank you so much. This was such a beautiful conversation. You've opened my eyes to so many amazing ideas. I can't wait to go out and apply it. And people who are watching this, I'm sure you probably want to like 
start looking at this as well. And if you enjoyed this conversation, listen to my previous podcast with Ramit Sethi, where he too talks about what to do with your money in 2019 and beyond. And also, if you want to check out Phil's work, as I mentioned, my wife signed up for the class. I got the free spouse fast, but we had a great time at that class. You can learn more about Phil's work at rule1investing.com. That's one as an O-N-E, rule1investing.com forward slash mindvalley. So rule1investing.com forward slash mindvalley. And definitely check out Phil's books. His books are called Rule Number One. You'll find it on Amazon and Payback Time. The subtitle for Payback Time is Eight Steps to Outsmarting the System that Failed You and Getting Your Investments Back on Track. Phil, any closing words? Yeah, my daughter and I just wrote a book called Invested, and I would recommend it as a great starting point. It's all of the things we talked about today, that whole way of figuring out the value of a business that's in there page by page. So take a look at that as well. Thank you so much, Phil. It was an absolute delight having you on the Mind Valley podcast. Great seeing you again. Look forward to seeing you soon. Take care, Phil. Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast. If you like the Mind Valley Podcast, take the next step. Become a Mind Valley member. Imagine being coached daily by the greatest teachers on the planet. How quickly would you transform your health, your mindset, your body? your relationships? How quickly would you double the size of your company? How quickly would you see your career grow? How quickly would you eliminate any limiting belief that's holding you back and manifest a life that you once thought beyond your dreams? When you become a member, you don't just get access to the greatest education in the world. You become part of a community of 150,000 of the most incredible people dedicated to personal growth. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now to get started.